Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on the Monday evening where we will continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 6 of Genesis, which means really we are going to be about the figure of Noah, that all-important patriarch Noah. Um, now, last week, I left you saying that we are going to talk about the Nephilim. So to really get us started this evening... I thought what we could do is go back and reread chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. And then I also want to go into Numbers 13, verses 31 to 33. I mean, my dear friends, there isn't a whole lot that we know about the giants. Uh, the movie Noah with Russell Crowe certainly had its portrayal of the Nephilim. But in the end, there's very little that we know, but we will explore what we do know for sure. All right, with that, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When men began to multiply on the face of the ground and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took to wife such of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, but his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Okay, now before we engage uh, this text, let us turn to uh, Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. And again, this is the only other citation where you read of the Nephilim. Verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Okay, so what is clear in this text is, well, obviously, these are uh, men of great size. Now, the question that often comes with just not these verses in chapter 6, but more specifically verse 4 with the Nephilim, is the idea that uh, demons were having sex with women and having offspring. Okay, this is where uh, there begins to be many questions. Uh, this text has been cited to respond to that question. If you were to really get at it, and get into the ancient writers, what you see is that them speculating that the sons of God may have been fallen angels, given that uh, the Nephilim, a Hebrew word that is often rendered as giant as we speak to it now, 
also means fallen ones. However, and this is very important, my friends, given that angels do not have bodies, <laughs> which are needed, of course, for the procreation of human children, barring a miracle, and given that in heaven human beings live like angels and thus do not get married, right? The identity of the sons of God points to mere humans. So in responding to that question or idea that demons were having sex with women and, and procreating, that's very problematic when you look at it speculatively within the larger context of uh, theological principles. Now, the early church fathers, uh, the first Christian thinkers, generally understood that the sons of God to be the offspring of Seth, whereas daughters of men are understood to be the offspring of Cain, uh, the immoral son of Adam. And again, this is what we noted last week. You can kind of draw that line and juxtaposition between Seth and Cain, right? One, the righteous son of Adam, and the other, Cain, the immoral son of Adam. I think, my friends, this is where it is very important for us when we read sacred scripture to think about it within the structure of our faith. When you go to interpret sacred scripture, you read one verse in light of the other, one chapter in light of the other, one book in light of the other, one testament in light of the other, right? And when you do that, what you begin to see is this kind of structure drawing out, right? There's the blessing, and then there's the curse, which is, oh, by the way, rooted in the narrative of Noah, as we have the great blessing of one line and the curse of another. And of course, in this case, what you have is uh, the righteous son of Adam and the immoral son of Adam. You have this kind of juxtaposition, this comparison and contrast, one against the other, so as to appreciate just not the verses themselves, but the larger narrative of salvation history. Um, it would be a dangerous thing to interpret sacred scripture by isolating a certain verse outside of its context, right? We, we don't interpret sacred scripture that way. What does Jesus himself say? You search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. On the road to Emmaus, what is he doing? He's showing how he is a new Moses, how he has just not come to fulfill but transform the law, right? So this is very important as we begin to go deeper and deeper into this text, that we can talk about demons and offspring all day long, but do it within the context of the narrative. And when you do, you might discover something else. And again, for me and in, in my research, what I see in relationship to this language of sons of God and, and sons of men speaks more specifically to the righteous son of Adam and the immoral son of Adam. And that would be very important. And it especially uh, fits the pattern, if you will, of how to properly interpret sacred scripture. Now, there, I believe, is an important insight that comes to us from Dr. Scott Hahn and his work, A Father Who Keeps His Promises. Uh, this is what he has to say on the general position of the fathers and what I was just talking about. When people began to multiply on the face of the earth, the sons of God, that is, the Sethite men, they were seduced by the beauty of the daughters of men, that is, the Canaanite women. The beauty of the wicked proved stronger than the resolve of the righteous. 
Sethite men found a new forbidden fruit, the beautiful but ungodly Canaanite women, to be irresistible. And they didn't just marry them, they married as they chose, which might imply, Dr. Scott Hahn argues, that along with mixed marriages, polygamy had now also entered into the line of Seth, the line of Seth, the covenant family of God. Thus, violent men were born, which I think is a very important line there. So what does that all mean? Well, when left unchecked, <laughs> sin itself, my friends, becomes what but institutionalized. If you don't think sin can be something that is institutionalized, that is made into law, just pick up the, the morning newspaper. That's all you have to read, right? Today is uh, January 22nd, right? Uh, these are the days where we are reminded of how sin is institutionalized in the Holocaust of abortion. My dear friends, in every age of salvation history, sexual immorality and violence go what but hand in hand, triggering the, the hard remedy of God's judgment in the form of, of what but what did we already talk about? Covenant curses. And Dr. Hahn concludes his, his thought here in this piece when he says, and nothing institutionalizes sin more than marital infidelity. The whole culture gets clobbered, especially the children. And afterward, only a remnant survives barely. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, incidentally, adds that when you talk about Nephilim, and I think this to be certainly important, it just doesn't translate as giants or fallen ones, but also tyrants, right? Violent men who want to make a name for themselves and will do whatever it takes to achieve it. Okay, so... If you're going to reflect speculatively into the Nephilim, I think it would be important to do so mindful of just not those key principles of interpreting sacred scripture, but also what these uh, words mean. You've heard me say this on more than one occasion. Often in the Hebrew text, we translate it without getting its fuller meaning, its deeper meaning. What do I mean? Well, let us just go to the next series of verses, and this will be highlighted. We read in uh, chapter 6, verses uh, 5 and following, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so speaking to that point I was making as far as Hebrew expressions, what is going on with verse 6 there? And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. My dear friends, this expression should not be taken literally as though God could be moved or swayed by an emotional wave of regret. <laughs> Scripture teaches otherwise, that God does not change as man changes. Go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. What do we read there? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Hey, did you hear that there? For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Uh, we can also add here, <laughs> he also doesn't repent. There's this idea out there that God repents. What's important here is to understand that the Bible often describes the thoughts and actions of God in human terms in order to make the mystery of God more understandable, more intelligible to human minds. Another case of figurative expressions, it certainly includes those that describe God as having physical features. We know that God does not have physical features, at least the God of the Old Testament, right? Yet, yet, we see that he has hands in the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verse 5. Arms in the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 3. Feet in Exodus 24, verse 10. White hair. By the way, that's where we get the white hair. Right? White hair in, in Daniel ch uh, chapter 7, verse 9. And of course, in the famous Psalm, Psalm 27, verse 8, he has a face. You see, these and similar word pictures, if you will, help to communicate the personal nature of God. Why don't you turn to uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19? Because I made the statement that, you know, God does not repent. And maybe some of us are thinking, well, what about the narrative in uh, Jonah, where God repents? That Hebrew is another illustration of the very thing that I'm talking about right now, because the Hebrew translates as a new judgment, right? After the people have repented, the Ninevites have repented, there was a new judgment. So the change was in the judgment, okay? This is not some emotional change, per se, or emotional wave of of repentance. That's not how God operates. Now, I said go to, what, Numbers 23, verse 19? What do we read there? God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. I have received the question before. I mean, the Old Testament is nothing but contradictions. Just take a look, Joe, at Numbers 23, verse 19. And, and God repenting in the narrative with Jonah. No, my friends, we have to go deeper. We have to go into that literal sense of sacred scripture. And again, by literal, I mean the intention of the author, appreciating the literary genre being employed so as to communicate a certain message. If in fact it is Moses who authored the book of Genesis, he wants us to see, my friends, that God is a God who desires to be in relationship with us. So very descriptive pictures are offered to us, pictures that we can identify with. God desires to inspire the authors of the sacred text so as to reach into our hearts. And I dare say, my friends, this kind of descriptive language very much ought to, to reach into our hearts. Okay. How about verse 9 here? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The generations, this is a formula that introduces new phases of history and narrative in Genesis. Anytime you see a, a phrase like that, you kind of stop. You kind of stop and take a step back so as to appreciate something new is going on. And of course, 
in verse 9 all the way through chapter 9, verse 19, we have the whole narrative of Noah. What about this language of righteous and blameless? You know, in the Hebrew, the word righteous is the highest affirmation of any one person. We can also use the word just. Why was the figure of Joseph in the Old Testament just? Why was he called righteous? Because he was a figure, a man of extraordinary sanctity and holiness. The only man in the Old Testament where we don't read of him sinning. Certainly, he was human, so uh, I'm sure he had fallen, but we don't read about that. And I think that speaks to his righteousness, his, his holiness, if you will, his blamelessness. If you were to go to Luke chapter 1, verse 6, we, we read of this language being used and, and how it applies to living according to the law of God. So at this earliest point in history, we have a man who observed the natural moral law that was inscribed on his heart. And certainly we know that his obedience to this law and to the Lord continues throughout the whole narrative. Okay, so before we jump into Noah making the ark as, as God commands, I thought we can look at a few topical pieces. And this just might take us to the um, end of our time together this evening. There's so much to talk about this topically. You know, a question I have received in the past, you know, how long did this whole flood narrative take? Well, if you were to read the narrative closely, you can get an exact account of days, right? The flood waters rise for 40 days, we, we read in chapter 7, verse 4, remain for a total of five months, chapter 7, verse 24, and then recede for five and a half months. That's what we read in the beginning of chapter 8. So the flood waters rise for 40 days, they remain for a total of five months, and then they recede for five and a half months, which gives us a deluge of ten and a half months. I mean, think about that. What have you done with the last ten and a half months? Hopefully, by the grace of God, you have done quite a bit. You have accomplished quite a bit, right? Imagine being on a boat for the greater majority of that time. What an extraordinary thing to think about. Often, when something is thrust upon us, something very unexpected, maybe it comes in the form of an encounter with another person, maybe in a, in a grocery store, or maybe it's a phone call. We are made to contemplate like we have never contemplated before. God allows these things because it has us going deeper in the spiritual life. Huh? And as we go deeper in the spiritual life, asking all sorts of new questions, we go deeper in our relationship with God. We are much more uh, fixed on our relationship with God, asking those questions. Why this? Why that? Why did he or she do this? Or why has this happened to me? Why this death? All those questions we ask, especially on the heels of something unexpected, has us going deeper. Now, I talk about this because imagine Noah and his wife and, and his family, the, the eight there, in this great ark, the kinds of questions that they were made to ask. Okay, all that being said, 
Um, theologically, when you look at this text, the text in the narrative of Noah, what we also ought to appreciate is how the flood brings about a new creation, cleansing, of course, the old world of the bloodstains and violence we read about in chapter 4. There are several parallels that I find fascinating when you begin to put the creation narrative against the flood narrative. What was I saying earlier about interpreting sacred scripture? One chapter in light of the other, one book in light of the other, and when you do that, you gain insight into how God works in, in salvation history? Well, do that with the creation narrative and the flood narrative, because there are several parallels to be drawn. Just as it was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, so it is in chapter 7, verse 11, we, we read that the land is once again engulfed by the deep. Like that in the narrative of creation, in the narrative of the flood, we read that the land re-emerges dry from the water. Noah and his family are blessed and made fruitful to multiply. That should sound familiar. We also read of this reaffirmation that man has dominion over the animals in chapter 9, verse 2. And also, of course, in chapter 8, verse 22, like that of 114, God renews his commitment to continue the daily and seasonal cycles. So here again, we are to interpret the flood narrative in the light of uh, the creation narrative. And be rest assured, my friends, when the first readers of this text were spending time with this text, they were going to see that for sure. All right, what else here? Well, the New Testament interprets the flood as also a foreshadowing of what but baptism. That sacrament which cleanses the believer of sin and, and confers the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ. What do we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 21? That the flood narrative was a type of baptism. And Peter actually employs the word type. And remember, the Greek for type is typus, which best translates as pattern. Pattern. Incidentally, my friends, what does the word history mean? The Latin is historia, which means to weave a pattern. We often think about the word history and we say his story. And as Christians, yeah, we, we think about God and, and salvation history. Well, if we are going to better understand salvation history, that is that plan of salvation where we find that kind of rhythmic pattern in sacred scripture, we do so by uncovering these types, these types. The other image is what but typewriter. And sure, that works. Now, I know I'm dating myself here, but for any of you out there who used to write with a typewriter, that seems so long ago now, right? What was the function of the typewriter? Well, you had the still letter impressed upon a canvas. And what does it do? It leaves a mark on the canvas, the mark of the letter. If it was an A, there'd be an A on the canvas, the paper. Well, what you have going on in the Old Testament uh, were marks of Christ, if you will. Okay, St. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, Christ lay hidden in the Old Testament 
in shadowy symbols. We could add to that shadowy marks, shadowy impressions. And typology, that is the study of types, isn't just reduced to Jesus Christ, right? But other images as well. And of course, here, what are we talking about? But the ark and the flood being a type of baptism. So an event in the Old Testament is a type of sacrament, of course, by which we are restored in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that grace of God's very life and love is conferred and etched onto our very souls. Now, allegorically, and what is an allegory? An allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another. One church father, St. Cyprian, says allegorically, the Ark of Noah is a figure of the one church and the baptism of the world, which purified and redeemed it, corresponding to the saving grace of baptism, right? I think the key word there for St. Cyprian is purified and redeemed, right? St. Augustine says that the family of Noah is saved by water and wood, just as the family of Christ is saved by baptism, which represents the suffering of the cross. I love that. That's a beautiful image. And as every kind of animal was aboard the ark, St. Augustine says, so believers from all nations are enclosed in the church. So as we begin to think critically about the narrative of Noah, it is very important, my friends, to just not appreciate the verses themselves, and we will really be getting into those in future weeks, but also more topically, what God is doing in salvation history. And so this is why we have taken time out to really spend some time with these more topical images. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, observations about what we are talking about here on Seeds of Truth, please do not hesitate to send an email my way, or you, or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org, J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. Just send your a message on its way. I will gladly respond to that. And again, I, I set aside Thursday to respond to your questions, uh, an evening that is tailored to your questions. And uh, so if you have any questions about the Christian Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to send me an email. I continue to go through your emails, your questions, and uh, look at what I want to respond to, what might suit certainly a good radio program. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to be able to reflect into the beauty of your word. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.